This week, we're taking issue with a host of items stretching from Capitol Hill to Boston City Hall. Sadly, one of them is a quintessentially American problem. We'll discuss the latest mass shooting that's roiling the country. Plus, we finally have a new speaker. Will the man known as MAGA Mike be able to work some bipartisan magic in the House? I'm Corey. I'm Matt. And I'm Sue. And this is Taking Issue. Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with the spark of revolution. One more indictment, and this election is closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people, by the people, and for the people. Well, good afternoon and welcome uh, to another edition of Taking Issue. I am Corey Smith, joined as always by NBC10 Boston political commentator and analyst Sue O'Connell and NBC10 political reporter Matt Pritchard. As you can tell, things look a little different this week, but that is what happens when breaking news calls. Matt is up in Maine uh, covering what is sadly the latest mass shooting in the country. Sue is on the opposite side of the newsroom from where I am in this very quiet and dark room, but we really do appreciate you being here. Um, let's go ahead and start with that mass shooting in the small community of Lewiston, Maine. It happened late Wednesday night. As of this recording, 18 people are dead, 13 more injured, 60 hurt, fleeing the violence in Maine. The shooting's happening at a bowling alley and a bar. Right now, police continue to search for Robert Card. He's a 40-year-old firearms instructor with military training. He was recently committed to a mental health care facility. Uh, investigators say he had reported hearing voices and threatened to carry out a shooting at a Maine military training base. Uh, Matt, I know you were dispatched to Maine almost immediately trying to track down lawmakers like Susan Collins, Angus King. Uh, what are you hearing from Maine lawmakers? Who have you talked to? Yeah, so, so far we've talked with Representative uh, Pingree, uh, one of two representatives that Maine has over in the House. And then we've also spoken with Senator Angus King over on the Senate side of things. What's interesting is that Senator Susan Collins, at least at this point, has remained in Washington, D.C. She gave a speech on the floor earlier today. And then the representative who actually has uh, this area in his district, Representative Jared Golden, uh, is not doing interviews at this moment. Apparently this is his hometown as well, so you have to think that he's likely speaking with family, friends, constituents as well, and sort of processing everything that's taken place. But of course, these lawmakers, they basically told me that they were caught completely off guard by this. They said Maine is often said to be one of the safest, if not the safest state in the nation, a nation or a state, I should say, where gun uh, ownership is very common among its constituents and its citizens. And so certainly the lawmakers right now are just sort of stunned into shock that this happened in the first place and are just trying uh, to lift up their constituents, the people that they serve, and also trying to look ahead to what sort of changes may be coming down the pipe for gun reform here in Maine and, of course, across the entire United States as well. Sue, uh, you're a New Englander. Uh, you have uh, covered a number of, of mass shootings. We, we lose count, sadly. Um, people think about New England as, as Matt said, one of those, those safe places where there are strict uh, gun laws in, in states like Massachusetts and maybe not so strict gun laws in places like New Hampshire, Maine, where gun ownership is just kind of a normal way of life. Um, just your thoughts on just the latest tragedy unfolding in the country. Well, I think it really underscores into what, what Matt was saying, one of the points here. You know, Maine has a relatively low uh, crime rate when it comes to weapons and guns. It's got a low murder rate. Uh, I don't know what the suicide rate is via firearms, but um, 
and as you said, like many parts of the country, even though it's in New England, uh, folks, a lot of folks have guns. They have them for sport, they have them for hunting, they have them for safety, and uh, except for, and I don't mean this to, 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 uh, to put it to the side, but except for gun by, uh, suicide by gun and accidents, they don't have a high violence rate by firearms. However, that does not make it, or any of us, immune from an incident like this, especially when Maine has so few fundamental gun safety laws on the books, basically because I think it feels like it lives in this bubble of people who understand gun culture. But unfortunately, when you have an incident like this, and we don't know what the driving forces are, but someone who has had access to a weapon that can kill many people very quickly, um, this is what the result will be. And hopefully, I say this again, as I've been saying for many years, hopefully it will have people take action. Now I say that, I feel like I have to qualify myself as a former member of the NRA, as someone who was nationally ranked in high school as a, uh, as a, as a shooter. I hold expert status with the NRA, but um, I also owned a Mossberg Bolt Action 22, which was not gonna do a whole lot of damage uh, to a whole lot of people. So uh, sadly, um, again, uh, you know, after Sandy Hook, I don't really know what it would take for people to change, but I'm afraid that the folks in Maine, the good folks in Maine who have safely owned their weapons for generations may have to take a hard look at what some of these gun safety laws are, especially when it comes to the red flag rules, the yellow flag rules that they have, and just some of the basic, basic laws to keep the guns out of the hands of people who should not have them, Corey. Yeah, and, and look, it's obviously your, 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 your thoughts are, are with the victims. Nobody should have to, to live through stuff like this, but sadly it is an American way of life, a uniquely American way of life to have these mass shootings. Uh, we've all been in the news business for a long time. We've covered our fair share of these things, and really it, it, it turns into we know this isn't going to be the last one. We're just waiting until the, the next one happens. Um, I think for me personally as, as a journalist um, and just as an American, my cynicism was sort of ingrained um, after Sandy Hook when you had just a bunch of little kids get killed inside of a school and nothing happened afterwards. Now look, things have somewhat changed. We know there was a bipartisan gun bill, gun safety bill uh, that was passed. Uh, a lot of states have passed red flag laws. You know, Maine has yellow flag laws, which the difference being there with the red flag law, a person's family and or the police can petition a judge to have their firearms taken away. The yellow flags, if I'm not mistaken, Sue, uh, only police can ask a judge and a mental health evaluation has to be done first before that person's uh, firearms get taken away. But you, you just look and, and there is a political side to this. We are in a campaign year. You cannot ignore that. I think, and Sue and Matt, tell me if you disagree, I don't think anything's going to be done following this, this latest shooting on Capitol Hill. We're too close to an election year, and we've got a GOP-controlled House of Representatives. Um, do you guys think anything happens on the back of this latest shooting? Well, Corey, I think one thing that will happen um, that I think people are starting to discuss is uh, we have, I think, as a society, not paid attention to the relationship that uh, veterans have to their weapons in a way, and I'm not, and, and, and I mean this with all respect, that when you go through uh, armed services, and especially when you've been deployed, your relationship to your weapon is very important. And we have often, as uh, the, the gun legislation, uh, and for police officers, law enforcement as well, as the gun legislation makes its way through our state capital here in Massachusetts, we, we have to take that into consideration when crafting laws, the sort of all or nothing 
um, regulations. At this point in our society, with so many weapons everywhere, we, I, I think that people are going to start crafting laws that take and acknowledge um, what has to be done when it comes to relationships. And again, the suicide rate among veterans via their weapons is higher than it should be. So it's a conversation that has to happen. Again, that's not going to be legislation, but conversation at least I think will move forward incrementally. And Sue, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought that up before we get to you, Matt, because just on Wednesday, as the Senate starts working through its fiscal year 2024 budget, they are considering a host of amendments to said budget. And one of those amendments was an amendment that would preserve gun rights for veterans who were deemed mentally unfit to manage their benefits, meaning they have mental health issues so much so that they cannot manage their own benefits. But the Senate approved on bipartisan lines, bipartisan in, in, in air quotes, um, this measure that would still allow those folks to own guns. And one of the senators who voted in favor of that amendment is Maine Senator Angus King. So, Matt, I, I'm curious to, to get to get your thoughts, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not sure if you have been able to, to, to speak with Senator King, but one wonders what, where his mind is on a day where you find out that this shooter was a veteran with known mental health issues, but was still allowed to have a gun. Yeah, I mean, we didn't touch on that a ton with Senator King. It was a block of press around him and he was speaking. Actually, what was interesting was we had a shelter in place alarm go off right in the middle of the interview and everyone had to just hustle off and get into their cars. So it shows you the urgency of the moment that we're in right now uh, in Maine when we're taping this. But in terms of, I guess, the gun reform that Angus King did talk about, because I asked him about areas where he thought, well, maybe there could be change in these different areas. He said high capacity magazines are one place he thinks that the U.S. Senate should be looking at right now and the U.S. Congress as a whole, as well as bump stocks, making it sure that uh, that is something that can't be done to alter a weapon, take it from semi-automatic over to automatic. So there are a couple of different areas, I guess you could say, where Angus King is open to having those conversations. But the overall conversation, as you guys are saying, is so wide ranging. There's so many different areas where it needs uh, to be addressed that you know, you take two things off the chessboard, three more things get jumped onto it. And it's just this revolving door that we go through every time we go through this tragedy. So to ask, answer your original question, Corey, I think most people would say we aren't going to see much come from this because we go through this rotation every time. Something happens, mm -hmm. people feel bad about it, they say thoughts and prayers, conversation starts to kick up and then it dies. And the other thing is, as you said, we're in an election year. We're a year away from that. This is going to be forgotten history by the time we get to that point. And so, you know, people's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. And unfortunately, I think this will be just sort of a victim to that as well. Right. And, it, and it's let's just be honest, it's going to happen again. Yep. We yep. just we just don't we just don't yep. know where. Is it going to be a school, a bowling alley, a movie theater, a mall? Who knows? But we are almost certain that it is going to happen again. And, and just to put a last point on this, according to the Gun Violence Archive, 565 mass shootings in 2023 alone. That 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 is where America is at, at this at this moment. All right, so let, let's move on. We uh, we finally have a new speaker. It just took four episodes of this podcast for Congress to get its act together. Uh, Mike Johnson, the Republican from Louisiana, unanimously elected speaker on the first floor vote. Which good for him. He he at least made it to the floor. Um, Steve Scalise couldn't even do that. Jim Jordan lost multiple times. Uh, Tom Emmer never made it. Um, but he was elected to Congress in 2016, started serving in 2017. This is a guy who has never held a leadership post, though 
He is within that Trump orbit. He has the uh, personal endorsement of the former president. Um, and he was really what the New York Times called uh, an architect, the most important architect of the Electoral College objections. He basically played a big role in, in, in crafting the legal arguments to keep President Trump, then President Trump, in power in 2020. So that is some of the baggage that he brings uh, to the speakership. But there's also the cultural baggage, if you will. He is staunchly anti-LGBTQ. He is staunchly anti-abortion rights. In fact, he has an A-plus rating from the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. And as soon as he won the gavel, you started to see sort of that opposition research come out um, from Democrats. He was an attorney and spokesman for a socially conservative legal group called the Alliance Defense Fund. Uh, Mike Johnson has written op-eds, this is on the record, calling homosexuality an inherently unnatural and dangerous lifestyle, one that would lead to legalized pedophilia and possibly even destroy entire democratic systems. Um, well, it was almost right, Corey. I mean, we almost have a, a destroyed democracy. I don't know if it's our fault as the Yeah, I don't know if it's the LGBTQ here, plus community's fault for that, Sue. But just, just your thoughts on this relatively not well-known person getting the speaker's gavel. So um, I think a couple of things happened here. Um, the squishes, the, you know, the Republicans in the middle who are, um, I would say, regular lawmakers. You may or may not agree with what laws they're trying to make, but they actually went to Washington to govern and actually want to make laws. I think they finally gave up holding the line and realized that the country wants a speaker. Uh, maybe not this speaker, but a speaker. So now they have a speaker. So uh, things that Democrats care a lot about and Republicans care a lot about, especially funding for Israel, which is something they all agree on, um, not always for the same reasons and not for what you might think are the right reasons, that can move forward. But I, I have to say, I've been looking at some of the numbers today, um, and the, the there's at least, I think, 10 or 11 Republicans who voted uh, for him uh, who are in swing states or in, in swing states or districts or in um, districts that are going to be open seats due to people moving on or running for other offices. And I think a couple of times Democrats yelled bye-bye when they went up, these Republicans, to vote for him. So this sets up a really interesting race if people can pay attention long enough who are Democrats that as we go into the next cycle of House races, uh, a few of these swing state Republicans who voted for him, who may not have wanted to vote for him, but um, they, they may be in danger. And this may be one of those moments where it looks like bad news for Democrats and progressives, but it could end up being good news because it could motivate the Democrats in those swing states to get rid of those Republicans. Matt, we were watching this all unfold in the politics pod, every single vote, it feels like. Uh, your thoughts on, my, on Speaker Mike Johnson? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I think Sue hit it on the head, which is basically like they had to get this done at the end of the day. They'd been through too many uh, failed Speaker nominees, and so this was the one that just everyone kind of had to hold their nose and go forward uh, with it. He's an interesting person in that I think I heard from a couple of people that said, you know, some over in the Senate were trying to look up who he was because some of them didn't even know him at this point. And so it is an interesting sort of rise from this lower level uh, part of the Republican Party all the way up. People say he has a nice demeanor, I guess, and that is something that allows a lot of people to 
feel a little bit better about him. But if you listen to some of those more liberal commentators, they will tell you uh, that Mike Johnson is sort of Jim Jordan without all the the flash and the brimstone that we know him uh, to bring when he's inside of a committee or on the floor as well. It's going to be interesting to see how he governs. I think, you know, you go back to like when Donald Trump was elected in 2016. A lot of people said, you know, maybe once he's in the White House, you know, he'll take uh, the uh, the position uh, seriously and feel that and then we'll change the rhetoric that he's using. We'll have to wait and see if Mike Johnson falls into that camp. Of course, Donald Trump uh, didn't, but Mike Johnson has said that he wants to be that speaker that everyone uh, can trust and that he's going to be transparent and he's going to be all of these things. Time will tell. We'll wait and see uh, if he ultimately decides to do that inside of his speakership. But as Sue said, we've got a year until Election Day. Will it impact uh, House elections once we get around to that? I think it really comes down to what bills he brings to the floor uh, and, and how he chooses to go about his business. Well, Matt, let me thank you very much for the tease there because we do have some sound that we can play from now Speaker Mike Johnson where he talked about transparency and how he plans to run his office. Let's take a listen. And I want to make this commitment to you, to my colleagues here and on the other side of the aisle as well. My office is going to be known for trust and transparency and accountability, for good stewardship of the people's treasure, for the honesty and integrity that is incumbent upon us, all of us, here in the people. All right, Sue, so you, you mentioned some of the challenges that Speaker Johnson is going to have to face immediately. Uh, we know government funding runs out in just a few weeks. Um, that's one. We've also got the war between Israel and Hamas. We need to fund Israel, or lawmakers believe we need to fund Israel. We've got a majority of lawmakers, maybe not a lot of Republicans, but a majority of lawmakers who say we also need to fund Ukraine as well. There's also appropriations bills for agriculture, for transportation. Yet here is a guy, Mike Johnson, who has never had to negotiate across different factions of Congress. Yet as Speaker, he is now going to have to get in a room with the president, with uh, Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer, and I, I guess with, with other Freedom Caucus members as well, yep. to, to sort of strike a deal to keep the government open to, to fund Israel and Ukraine. Where is he going to have the hardest negotiations, do you think, with, with Biden and, and Democrats in the Senate or with Republicans within his own party? So correct me if I'm wrong, but the vote to vacate is still, one vote to vacate is still on the table. Right? So his hardest constituency are the folks that put him there, the hateful eight that McCarthy called them, the Freedom Caucus, who are, um, he's still going to have the same problems when it comes to funding the government. Uh, he's still going to have to make a deal. He's still going to have to deal with the Senate. I think generally there are people who want to govern in Washington, D.C., and then there are these extremists. And um, I think we should, I'm going to still keep saying, uh, Stefanik may be your next House Speaker at some point. I'm like a weather person who says it's going to rain every day. 30% of the time I'm going to be right. But, you know, he could be gone. Um, how many Scaramucci's, how many heads of lettuce, I mean, whatever, however we want to measure his speakership. But I think the hardest group he's going to have is the, the, the Freedom Caucus. Yeah, and I agree with that, Sue. I, I think ultimately we've seen President Biden and Democrats come to the table to try and negotiate with Republicans and find that compromise. We've yet to see that from the Freedom Caucus. And so, you know, if Mike Johnson chooses to do the same thing that Kevin McCarthy did and try and reach across the aisle and get things done with Democrats, he may face the exact same fate. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. 
just like Kevin McCarthy, there was a grace period, and ultimately the bill came due and he was ousted from his position. We'll see if the same thing happens to Mike Johnson. Hey, Corey, Corey, to, to that point about the short, you know, the lives that people live that aren't paying attention to politics like we are, if the dysfunction continues to happen, like if we start counting from January with McCarthy's vote and it just the Republicans keep getting in their way, it just becomes one long thing and the voter can't get over it because it's still going on and on. And that's the challenge that the Republicans have in sort of making it difficult for them to get elected in November if the dysfunction is just every single day, but different. So we'll cover it because it's new. Matt, I'm curious to know, and I know he he was you know just just elected uh, on on Wednesday, but how is this hitting on the campaign trail? I have to think Democrats are going to they they can already tie him to, to former President Trump because they you know basically you know <laughs> work to try to keep him in power. But for for the other candidates, do, do you foresee them having to answer questions about a his his inexperience and b his ties to former President Trump? Yeah, I think it's going to keep coming up, especially when you have candidates like Chris Christie who have been a little more critical of Donald Trump and will likely try to be critical of Mike Johnson. But we spoke with him yesterday and basically his answer was what we talked about at the very beginning, which is that we needed a speaker and this was the best option there. And so we needed to do this so that they could get back to governing. But I think you will hear candidates like Chris Christie continue to be critical of Mike Johnson, of the Freedom Caucus who are disrupting the way uh, for work to happen in the House. He's done that with Donald Trump plenty. There's no doubt he would do it to Trump allies as well. It'll be interesting to see how other candidates, I mean, when you talk about a Vivek Ramaswamy or, 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 uh, or Ron DeSantis, who aren't quite as bold when it comes uh, to calling out Trump, or in Vivek's case, uh, are basically Trump light out there on the campaign trail. So this is something that's going to keep coming up, and I'm sure every time we have an issue, if there continues to be that grinding of the gears and an inability to get your business done, that's when it's going to come up. Now, if Mike Johnson can get in there and actually govern, well, then I don't think they're going to hear about it at all. In fact, they'll probably all fall in line behind him. But will that happen or not? I think this Congress has shown us that they have an inability to do that. So is it now to the point where it is undoubtedly Donald Trump's Republican Party? I mean, you think about Kevin McCarthy and he was somehow able to have his cake and eat it too. On January 6th, he was able to call out the president uh, and, and say how, how terrible uh, the, the riot at the Capitol was, but then he was able to go to Mar-a-Lago and have that photo taken with him and, and sort of survive that. Well, now here you have uh, a Mike Johnson, who again, the New York Times called the most important architect of the electoral college objections is, and, and, and even to even further that point, we saw when he was the speaker designate that that gaggle of Republicans behind him at a press conference, and you had a reporter ask if if Mike Johnson, you know, sort of regretted his role in the 2020 uh, attempts to overturn the 2020 election, and Republicans booed and and drowned out that reporter's question, basically told her to shut up. Um, is this now is this sort of sort of a, a badge of honor in, in the GOP? I believe one one uh, Congressperson. Uh, yelled damn right when uh, the Democrats were nominating Hakeem Jeffries and, and talked about uh, Mike Johnson's role in, in trying to uh, overturn the results of the 2020 election. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as, as we experienced, I think I went into uh, a meeting Tuesday with you guys and said that I thought Emmer was going to get elected. And then I went to an appointment and came out and he, <laughs> he had already pulled out. And part of it was because Trump said, this is not, he's a rhino, he's a globalist, this is terrible. And then one uh, truth social posting from Trump helps this guy 
get forward and get elected. So there's no doubt about it. But, you know, Trump's problems are continuing to mount legally. Uh, and I'm, I'm again, we can we can talk about the 50 state plan for Trump to get elected, but it is still going to come down to five states. And every day that Trump is in court and getting uh, reprimanded and not moving forward as much as that helps him with some fundraising, I think overall in the general election that hurts him. And we may see, I mean, I also maintain we now have two Republican parties. Uh, we have the MAGA Republicans and the GOP, if you will. And I think that Trump does still have them in a stranglehold, but that could change at any minute. Let's give credit, by the way, hold on one second, Corey. Right, Let's right, give right. credit where credit's due to Sue. She learned that Emmer had pulled out like minutes before she got on air and pivoted on a dime. Perfect analysis. Anyway, hats Thank off. Thank you. We're all used to them just pulling out the last minute. I mean, it's all, I have a list of 17 Congress people that could be speaker at any moment. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, we know we know there's a debate coming up uh, soon in, in a couple of weeks on, on NBC. Matt, I, I, I got to think you agree that they'll probably get a question about this. Um, in, in what way the moderators plan to ask it will be will be interesting to watch. But I mean, what if you were interviewing the candidates like you are have been doing? What would you ask them? How would you want to get uh, or gauge their reaction to Mike Johnson becoming speaker? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I asked Chris Christie how damaging just this whole process was to the Republican Party, and he said every single day that goes by, it becomes more and more damaging to the Republican Party. And I think that question is going to keep coming up as we go along into Mike Johnson's speakership. You know, if he continues uh, that sort of tendency of the House Freedom Caucus to not want to govern, it's going to continue to be more and more damaging for the Republican Party as we go along. I guess the question really is, like, do you think voters are shifting with him? I think that would be the question uh, for these candidates. Are, are voters now you know, sort of falling in line that this is the new normal with the Republican Party? Or is there still that thing you hear from a lot of moderates? Is there a big chunk of those voters who really aren't um, taking in that message and they want a Republican Party that's a little bit more modern and willing to talk a little bit more with the other side of the aisle? And I think that's a good question for the candidates because they're vying for those uh, voters. So if those voters are now falling in line, are these candidates going to have to fall in line? Is that the only way to win uh, a Republican primary? And then maybe you shift tact once you get into the actual general election cycle. So I think that's a conversation to have. Meanwhile, by the way, that debate taking place November 8th in Miami on NBC 10. Uh, Sean Callahan and I are going to be down there for it as well. So hopefully we'll get a chance to talk with those candidates and ask these questions. And Sue, before we move on to our, to our last topic of Mass and Cast, I want to ask you, do you think Democrats are going to give Mike Johnson the Pelosi treatment that Republicans did during the elections where every single ad you see is President Trump, Mike Johnson, you know, and, and, and try and just really tie them together like the Republicans did with Pelosi and Obama and then Pelosi and Biden. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be, I think they'd be crazy if they didn't because what Mike Johnson stands for and what he supports, which I think we talked about, the majority of Americans do not. So every time he opens his mouth, he is saying something that the majority of Americans do not support are, or are against and don't want their country to be. So uh, as long as they can tie the two of them together, you know, in a weird way, uh, more to impact Donald Trump rather than to, to, to impact Nancy Pelosi, you know, the other way, or, or to, you know, the speaker is the one that's going to drag down the candidate of Trump, because Trump always is able to kind of dance around what he really thinks. But this is a guy who he picked and who, again, is against the mainstream of what American voters want. 
right, we got a few minutes left. Let's talk about the uh, big vote at the Boston City Council this past week. Uh, Mayor Wu's mass and cast ordinance finally uh, in front of the, the entire body. Basically, the mayor wanted the encampments cleared with the stipulations that before those, camp, those tents get cleared out, folks are offered transportation to shelters, made aware of shelter space that is available. Council changed up the ordinance a little bit, uh, but ultimately voted in favor of it nine to three. You had one uh, person abstaining. And basically the ordinance requires the city to again notify residents about transportation to shelter. It removes restrictions on what belongings can be stored by the city. And it changes the penalty for those who refuse to move um, from a, a, a fine to, to a sort of verbal warning. We, we always hear this argument in, in cities across the country about whether or not clearing tents is an effective way to really strike at the problem of homelessness. Sue, do you think, as somebody who, who, who's lived in Boston for a long time, who has seen this problem up close, do you think this will help or hurt efforts to not only just end homelessness, but to, to clean up the mass and cast area? Yeah, so this is actually in my neighborhood as well. It's not just in the city I live in, but also in my neighborhood. And um, I, I guarantee that there's no real answer here. The question is, what's the goal, right? Because a number of these people who are in these encampments and who are there could find some place to go, but for many reasons, addiction issues, mental health issues, they're, they're not going. And um, many of them are not from Boston. Some of them aren't even from Massachusetts. I've talked to a number of folks at the McDonald's there and they've come up from New Jersey or down from Maine. Uh, they certainly come from the suburbs as well uh, and uh, come to that area for the community that they perceive to be there for them. So uh, if the goal is to clear that area, right, not to end homelessness, not to let, uh, help it, folks with addiction, but to clear the area, this is really the only way to do it. And it's a bit of an about face for Michelle Wu, who as we've talked about for all leaders, you know, when you're a city council, you're advocating for uh, your constituents and your ideals, and then you're the mayor and you have to run the city. And people repeatedly say they don't want this, these encampments at Mass and Cass. It's bad for all sorts of, bad for the people there, bad for the businesses. I continually see new students, new college students, or uh, people on vacation who find themselves standing in the middle of that intersection, and it's dangerous for everyone. So if the goal is to clear the encampment, which, by the way, naturally starts to happen if the weather starts to get colder by January, there are a few tents there, then this is really the only thing to do. What has to happen, though, is to make sure that those people who are not coming to Mass and Cass for um, a community, if you will, but are coming because they are uh, chronically homeless or chronically ill, that they don't spread to the other neighborhoods around Mass and Cass, like Roxbury and the South End and uh, the Fenway area. So I think um, definitely the city leaders' hearts are in the right place to try and change this. But again, if the goal is to clear the area, this is the only way to do it. Matt, I know you've been doing a couple of, of pieces looking forward to the city council elections. What have you heard from the candidates um, about the mass and cast situation? Because it is, no matter what district you're really running, this is sort of that at-large issue uh, in the city of Boston uh, that, that candidates have to address. Every district, every candidate has brought this up if I don't ask about it first. It's an issue that they're all concerned about and you get a variety of different answers, but most of them agree that it needs to be cleared and we need to have services for these folks to help them out with the mental struggles that they have or the addiction struggles that we have. I'm thinking of one in particular is Jose Ruiz down in District 5, I believe. 
mentioned that he thought, you know, getting Long Island back open as quickly as possible, getting that bridge open and having that facility will be a key point uh, in creating a space where those people can go and get the help that they need and clearing the mass and cast situation. But Mayor Wu's idea, this thing that she put forward, seems to be supported by most of the candidates I spoke with. I won't say all of them because I can't quite remember, but most of them seem to be in support of that. Now, the one thing I was curious to ask Sue as well, since you've been around so long, is that when it comes to city council, taking on something like this, it seemed like they sort of kicked the can down the road for like a month and a half. They went to committee yeah. with it instead of just approving it right away. Why do you think they did that? Well, my cynical me says because the weather's getting colder, right? And as I said, if you watch this cycle at Mass and Cass every single year, that once we get into January and February, the population decreases and then it starts back up. So if you wait long enough, the problem somewhat resolves itself temporarily. Um, the other thing is uh, the election is up and they didn't necessarily want to be on record. They wanted to kick it as far as they can uh, for those who may support changing the area, supporting the folks in the area, but didn't want to be on record for voting. Uh, and the other issue basically is that it's, it's a, a challenge for them to deal with an issue that is, dare I say, unfixable. Um, that you clear it out, they go somewhere else, the issues of addiction and the homelessness that comes with it and the lack of housing and lack of low barrier housing for some of these folks where uh, many advocates will tell you that if you can house them first, then you have a better chance of helping them to kick or at least manage their addiction. If the requirement is that they are drug and alcohol free before they get housing, you're not going to be able to fix it. So I think it was really just an issue of, um, and also acknowledging that there are laws on the books already that could have helped to manage it, but um, no one wanted to see a repeat of just the street cleaners and the public sanitation people coming in and just throwing belongings away because, you know, Michelle Wu made a big deal out of then Mayor Marty Walsh clearing the area and someone who had used a wheelchair as a, a carriage, basically. That image of it being thrown into the trash compactor was a, a, a way to attack Marty Walsh. Um, so I think everyone has been through this a lot now and they would like to just, in one way, let it resolve itself as the weather gets cold. In another way, just um, try to not talk about it during the election season. And I think it just really underscores the ongoing housing crisis uh, in, in Boston and, and greater Boston uh, that we know that the city is also trying to tackle as well. So is the Healy administration. All right, well, we're going to have to leave it there for this week, guys. Uh, Matt and Sue, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, and thank you for all of you who've been watching, who've been listening. Uh, we promise we'll be in person hopefully next week. Uh, pending any more uh, big breaking news. Uh, but that is it for another edition of Taking Issue. Be sure to join us Sunday morning at 1130 on NBC10 Boston for another edition of At Issue, where you can see myself, Matt, and Sue as well. Until then, we'll talk to you all next week. Thank you.